Welcome to the SSEU podcast. The SSEU is a weekly podcast that started as a tribute to the Sub Beacon podcast, formerly known as the Substandard. Uh, we have a very special episode this week because we are going to be talking about submarines. We have two guests and Haberman is not here. On this week's episode... Keep a sharp eye out for surface radar bearing 170. Sir, I have the deck of the con. Very well. Mr. Watson has the deck of the con. Distant contact bearing 160. Sonar reports distant contact bearing 160. Dickie, Greyhound, the contact is now 10 degrees to my port. Aye, sir. Mr. Lopez. Single charges, sir. Single charges, yes. Sonar reports contact bearing 160. All mounts, fire at will. I've got him, Mr. Watson. Captain is con. Right sharply, another 10 degrees. Right sharply, 10 degrees, Ice Force contact bearing 156. Range steady at 1,080 yards. Greyhound, Dickie, I have him dead to rights. I'm attacking. Range 1,000. Left full runner to zero, 8-5. Come on in, Dickie. I'm turning the port to clear for you. Thank you, Greyhound. Here we come. Left full runner to 170. Left full runner to 100. You know what, John Milnius? You can alto Subarco and semper my paratus because you deserve to have your entrails eaten by wolverines while you watch. Doors open, Captain. Comrades. Our own fleet doesn't know our full potential. They will do everything possible to test us, but they will only test their own embarrassment. We will leave our fleet behind. We will pass through the American patrols, pass their sonar nets, and lay off their largest city and listen to their rock and roll while we conduct missile drills. Eh? And when we are finished, the only sound they will hear is our laughter. While we sail to Havana, where the sun is warm, so is the comrades. Cryogenic plant coming online, Captain. A great day, comrades. We sail into history. Soyuz, Nirushimi, Respublik, Svabjotnik, Slytia. Caterpillar engaging. Nami, Kayarus. What happened? Now the story of an eclectic fan base who lost touch with reality and the one podcast that somehow holds them all together. It's the Substandard Expanded Universe. I am Thomas, your host, here as usual, together with Ryan Kinney. How are you tonight? I'm pretty good. I was, I was on time tonight. I just, um, and it's not important. Well, I just wanted to say that. We'll get to that. We can talk about that. It um, really wasn't. Yeah. I was still here at 10.15. You just didn't show up until like 10.30. <laughs> <laughs> if we're running on Ryan time, we're not actually that late. 
We have two guests. They are well known to most people on Twitter that have come in contact with the Megathread or the Subbeacon. The first guest is Haiku Jonah, known for buying pants. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It is good to be here and to have pants. This is your second time. Second. Right? Yes, yeah, second, second time that you've let me out of the dungeon. I appreciate it. Then we have someone who is known as the keeper of the substandard slash sub beacon archive. Uh, Mustang yeah. Man joins us for this episode. Hello, guys. Do, do you know how many episodes of the substandard and the sub beacon that there are in total? I don't. I don't have my statistics up to date on that yet. Well, let's count them right now. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> You've come to the right place for counting. Are they in the 200s? Yeah, they're definitely in the 200s. I can tell you that there were, it's helped along by uh, the mini episode. Remember back in the Halcyon days, we used to get a, oh, yeah. a Thursday yeah, and a Tuesday episode. Yeah. yeah. The 15-minute special. I had almost completely forgotten about that. Was this week's episode the first one that didn't have JVL? Yes. No. Was it? Yeah, I, I thought he'd missed one before. He's missed before. Uh, remember when Mike Warren? Yes, the, the and, head head and that was a two week for. Oh, okay. There was a two week break, and then JVL freaked out because he had somebody else had worn his headphones. Oh, oh yeah, that's yes. right. That's right. Yes, <laughs> one of the best uh, JVL freakouts. That was spectacular. I figured we should start off uh, because I have some news that was on Twitter earlier, but it's now sort of official in that later this fall, I'm leaving the US to go back to the mothership where all wood sprites go. So I'm going back home to Sweden in October. Uh, I start a new job and I am really excited about it. We uh, will hopefully keep doing this podcast, even though the time difference sometimes, like today, causes problems. You have plenty of time to do this before work in the morning. <laughs> we'll see. It should work. But what I wanted to get to is that I took some time earlier this week and I thought about what are the things about the U.S. that I really appreciate. And I have come up with a list of things. First of all, one of the things with the U.S. that I have really come to appreciate is the fact that the parking spaces are really, really wide because everyone and their mother drives an F-150. They make sure that the parking spaces are wider than a Prius. And it is amazing. Like, have you guys ever driven a car in Europe? No. No, never no. been to Europe. It is. They were, and I assume that maybe this is the case in some U.S. cities, but the parking spaces in, in, in Europe and in Sweden are ridiculously narrow. So, I'm guessing a parking garage in an East Coast city might might give Europe a run for its money because yeah, they seem like they want to maximize space. Well, I remember trying my friend trying to park his Chevy Avalanche in a parking garage in New York City, and nothing about that was a good idea. I don't know how we got out of there without damage. Some of the streets, like you in the old town in Philadelphia, and in order to park, people are parking up on the sidewalk. And, you know, heaven forbid you try to get your F-150 down that street. Here, um, like, if you have a Prius, like, uh, legally, you have to drive on the bike path. <laughs> uh, Mustang, you're, you're from the West Coast, where I haven't driven as much, like in Portland, Seattle area. Seattle has a lot of hills. So Seattle has uh, a fun feature that's um, back-in slanted parking, places where you have to back-in and you have to park in parallel or you have to back in at a slant i've been i've been lucky enough to spend how much is that five of my years in the u.s i've spent in uh, oklahoma 
and then out in Arizona, they are very car friendly, which also brings me to the second point on my list, which is gas prices. They are about one third in the US compared to what they are in Sweden. Second item on my list. Those were one. Second item is ranch. We don't really have ranch, had no real clue what it was. I was reluctant to try it at first. So I got to the US and I was like, what do you mean I can't just get mayo? What's the point? Where are all my dipping sauces? So my favorite Swedish uh, burger place, they have like 10 different dipping sauces. One is uh, taco sauce. One is just melted cheddar. One's called hot creole, whatever. They have like 10 different things. Whenever I go anywhere in the US... This is some juice from before we cooked the burger. (laughs) Whenever I go anywhere in the US, if I'm getting wings, I'm getting anything that has fries to it, I always just ask for ranch. And it is is great. What's wrong with you? Why would you... Gross. What else would you get? Not ranch. You discovered fry sauce. What? Fry sauce. Is that ranch? Mustang, you know what fry sauce is, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm a blue cheese man myself. I always go with blue cheese over ranch. What is fry sauce? Isn't it like mayonnaise and ketchup and something? I'd tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Is this a West Coast thing? It's definitely a Western U.S. sort of thing. I Heinz just started marketing something that they call mayo chip, I think, at, that's supposed to be fry sauce. No. That's just not no. right. <laughs> I'd rather eat a sauce from the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> Go to Red Robin and get their campfire sauce. That's basically fry sauce with chipotle in it. It is. That's I, the stuff right there. I have had that. That is, that is good. Like Red Robin is my chilies. I love that place. I, I will go there and I, I've tried most of the things in their menu and I think it's great. How many Red Robins are in Sweden? Zero. Which brings me to the other thing that Sweden doesn't really have. They might have a couple in the larger cities like Stockholm and Gothenburg, we don't have dining movie theaters. Since Ryan took me to a movie house and eatery or whatever it's called in Austin, I've only started going to dining movie theaters. I will happily pay the extra money. We don't have those either right now, so... (laughs) (laughs) Tenant's not going to be released. Sonny was very distraught today. (laughs) What's your guys' prediction when it comes to movie theaters? Are Are you a JVL or are you a hopeful Sonny? I'm never as pessimistic as JVL, but how long can they hold out? It's not looking good. You need cash flow at some point. There was an article They're not- yesterday claiming that Disney is uh, in dire financial straits right now. I saw that. How can that be true? Is it because they have all these costs that they can't just shed? And- they have no liquidity. I mean, they bought all this stuff <laughs> and you can't just, you know, go to the ATM and cash it out. So, and some of what they've got, who's going to pay for ESPN? Yeah. Everything that was a revenue source for them practically has dried up between right. cruise ships and theme parks and movies so all of a sudden they have no money coming in and huge overhead yeah there's no there's nothing essential that disney has you can live without it have you guys checked out espn recently what's on there (laughs) are they still like airing cornhole championships or something i I saw cornhole on espn (laughs) a while back yeah the only sport on espn where the participants are in worse shape than i am Yeah, I don't pay for ESPN, so I don't see it. Who knows what's on it? But all I got that I would be interested in is is old games. Old, like old historic, uh, like football games, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Just show show me, you know, basically ESPN classics. Show me the stuff that. Yeah, you know, I don't think they're doing that way though. Back when. 
Yeah, I think they're doing it a little bit, but not a little not bit. Very yeah, much. okay. They've that, had a couple of hits with the sports documentaries, but you can only do so many of those. Yeah, and those take a lot of time and money too. Yeah, they're just they're yeah. lucky that they had those like ready to go. Speaking of, so the last thing on my list is college sports, which is something that we don't have in Sweden because we have this stupid idea that universities are just for education, but Americans have figured out that they're also for sports. And it's amazing. Like, it's a lot of fun. Like, I will watch college football. I don't really care about the NFL. And college sports, I will miss that. Uh, because I'm in Europe. There is no way for me to possibly s- stream games from the US. Yeah. So I-, I will miss out on all of it. Yeah, there's nothing. You'd never find it. Too bad you're not sponsored by ExpressVPN. <laughs> this would be the perfect time. Okay. At least you still have comedy kickball. We think ExpressVPN goes after like shows us like, yeah, just say like you can stream stuff from places where you're not. <laughs> Wait, are you saying they should or that they do? I'm sure they, do. they don't. They actually say never miss a game. Oh, they do? <laughs> because I know like yeah. MLB is like, like if you have, I, I've had MLB.tv for a long time. And like if the Reds play in Houston, I can't watch it. It's good for me because any Reds games that aren't in Texas, I can watch. But if they play in Texas, it's blacked out here. But with ExpressVPN, I can just change my location. But the MLB hates that stuff. So my friend who's a Mariners fan in in Portland, you know, you're you can't see any MLB TV in Portland yeah. because that's home market. So. He would use ExpressVPN all the time, and it worked for him. I remember when I was in Oklahoma, I had uh, a friend from St. Louis who was a huge Cardinals fan. He couldn't get any of the Cardinals games because they were still considered in market because Oklahoma is this weird thing where they don't have their own team. So they're both in market for like Dallas, but also in market for St. Louis. It's it's right. With like Indianapolis, with like Reds games. When I lived in Indianapolis, I couldn't get any Reds games because I was considered in market. I think Indianapolis gets blocked out for like the Cubs and the Reds and the Indians and like everything. Yeah, the Cardinals, like any any of the Midwest teams, Indianapolis is blocked out. And you're not really, it's not that close to, that you, you're going to go to the games regularly. Yeah, there's like half a dozen teams in, yeah. you know, 100 miles radius. So in theory, you should be able to see them on broadcast TV. So then MLB TV gets blacked out in your area. Yeah, eventually, we once like Fox Sports Cincinnati came about, we could get that. But for a while, like we would get Fox Sports Indiana with the normal back when you had normal cable packages and Fox Sports Indiana didn't carry Reds games still. Transition. Haiku. I believe that you, you have uh, haikus for us. Do you want to do all of them at once or should we spread them out? We can do it however you want. I've got I've got one for each of you. Can we start with Ryan? You want Ryan's first? Yes. Okay. This is a Texas haiku. Bucky's has the nugs. Better than California. What's an Alamo? <laughs> I have to admit, Ryan, that so we went to the Alamo years ago, almost now or something like that. And mm-hmm. it was it was like it was cool. It was fun to visit, but it feels really overhyped. Yeah, I mean, you're not from America, so <laughs> that's fine. I think we've been I mean we lived in Texas for I think 11 years now. I think we've been to the Alamo three or four times. The latter three times were just to take people who were visiting. What's my haiku? 
Okay, this is a Sweden haiku. See the lovely lakes. A moose once bit my sister. Hot Oslo dentists. <laughs> Everything in that haiku is true, uh, including the fact that <laughs> Norwegian women, they have a really good reputation in Sweden as well. Uh, okay, and what's, uh, what's uh, Mustang Man's haiku? Mustang Man. Mustang Man is, a, uh, is an immigrant traveling from... Oregon to Ohio, so I wrote this just for him. An Oregon to Ohio haiku. Moe's is for tourists. And which OSU is which? Skyline Chili. Yum. I like it. How do you feel about Skyline Chili? Skyline Chili is good. I like it. I don't I don't mess with the spaghetti or the salad. I just get it over the hot dog. But I like it. But, it's not Texas Chili. But isn't it to, to be Skyline Chili? It has to be served over spaghetti or yes. otherwise well, it's just yeah. Ohio chili or something. I don't know. I'm just not orthodox enough for that. So <laughs> it's that pizza place that is, um, I don't know if it's in all of Ohio or just in Cincinnati, pizza. but they have yeah, pizza, pizza, that's a, pizza. That's what I was thinking of. <laughs> uh, gosh, they have it at great American ballpark where the Reds play, but it's big in Cincinnati. I cannot think of the name of it. When we lived in Louisville, we would get that. We would drive into Cincinnati to get it all the time. I don't know what it's called. But if only there was some way to find out. Somebody could effort that. What about White Castle? You know, we don't have a White Castle anywhere near us. I think my uh, my closest White Castle, even though the uh, headquarters is up in Columbus, I think my closest White Castle is more than 100 miles away. I have a bad association La with White Castle. because Oh, La Rosa's, okay. Do they deliver? <laughs> yeah, and could you have it? <laughs> yeah. Just, Mustang Man, what about Bob Evans? I have never been to Bob Evans or Big Boy, which we also have quite a few Big Boys. Oh, I've never been. I don't think I've ever been to a Big Boy, even though they're everywhere. The statue creeps me out. Yeah, (laughs) it's a Big Boy. I see that and it's like, do not come in here. When I was at University of Illinois, they did. Do you guys know of Portillos in Chicago? Yeah, I've heard of it. I've never been there. It's this like primarily like hot dog sausage place known for their brats. Well, of course it is. Uh, Does Abe Froman own it? I have no idea who that is. Should I know who that is? You need to educate this man. Your search term is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So they didn't have a Portillo's down in Champaign. And then while I was there, it opened. And for the first, I don't know, like months, I tried to go there and I I would drive down the street and I would just see the line of cars of college students from uh, who were from the suburbs of Chicago, but they were at U of I. There were cars around the block and I just refused to go. Eventually I got to go. Eh, It was okay. That's like uh, Black's Barbecue in Austin, where uh, the wait when they initially opened in downtown, like, like you had to order. If you wanted to go order, you had to place it like two weeks in advance. And uh, Obama went there when he, because the, does the line, like you want same day, you have to get there in the morning and hopefully by the afternoon you'll get served. And so we put it into go order and we finally got it. We're just like, that's, you know, it's pretty good, but not, it's fine. <laughs> not two weeks worth, not two but weeks. No. Good. This is not the one you took me to because the one you took me to is out in the boonies no. somewhere. Yeah. We did because it's still that way. It's still like the weight is still insane. And they close at like two o'clock. Okay. We could have we could have gotten up at six in the morning and stood in line for three hours with all four kids if you wanted to. <laughs> but, uh, uh, we took you to the Salt Lake. We like the Salt Lake better anyway. Uh, okay, let's continue with the haikus. Haiku. Yes. Uh, I've got a special haiku for Chris. 
Since he is not here to interrupt me or to defend himself, this is a South Dakota haiku. Cows and meth and cows. (laughs) 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 I'm just dying at Ryan's reaction right now. Okay. Cows and meth and cows, wind and snow and cows and meth. Meth and cows and meth. (laughs) I was thinking about (laughs) South Dakota earlier. So they have... They have two big sites in the state, right? So it's Mount Rushmore, and then it's just the Black Hills in general. And both of these things will have to be canceled. Mount Rushmore because it's problematic, and the Black Hills because obviously it's the Black Hills. We can't have that. And the most famous person from South Dakota is Tommy Lauren. Yeah, we definitely have to cancel that state. (laughs) You also have a haiku for the Megathread? Yes, my captors in the Megathread who... Basically, my origin story is I was an internet nobody, a Twitter nobody, until I got tagged into the megathread, and I can't leave. So here is my haiku for the megathread. Hayfield near Buxton. Rock wall, oak tree, lava rock, Zuataneo. What was that last bit? You'll have to pry up the rock to see. How many movies do I have to reference that you haven't seen, (laughs) Thomas? (laughs) If it's an American movie, it's 50-50. Shawshank Redemption is easily on my top five list, just favorite movies. And one of the things I love about it, it's such a great adaptation of the source material. Stephen King, if you can limit him to 80 pages, he can tell a pretty oh, good right. story. Yeah, it's, a short it's, story it's, when yeah. you, it's when you let him go on for 1,300 yeah. pages that yeah. it just is a train wreck. Right, yeah. How, how is it a thing? That, that's 300 pages of story crammed into 1,100 pages. I mean... Who yeah. bought this? He, he turns into James Patterson when he goes above <clears throat> 80 pages. Transition. So the reason that we are all here today is that we figured with Chris gone, we are finally going to have a submarine episode because he's not just going to go on about life aquatic. I wanted to start this by, uh, not Chris, Ryan, you have a piece of submarine history for us that you wanted to share. Well, I mean, just... I don't know how well educated the listeners are about submarines, but like I'm, I'm really into submarine history and technology. And so just kind of want to give everybody an overview before we get started. The name submarine came about when the Marines invented submarines in 1992 and they had trouble getting volunteers to man the subs. So leadership who did not see much potential in the idea of submarines rather than wasting their talented officers, forced the worst and most annoying Marines into the program. It was originally named Marines in a Boat Underwater, or Mabu. (laughs) Many men were lost in those early days. The practice was borderline barbaric. It consisted of lowering and... Go on, go on. It consisted of lowering an upside down bathtub over men sitting on a plywood <laughs> piece of plywood with trash bags tied around their head. For some reason, back in the 90s, they thought this would enable them to breathe underwater. Half the men suffocated before they even got in the water. <laughs> anyway, bathtub over plywood, and they tied it really, really tight. Uh, at, some point, good was, <laughs> at some point, there was a conversation about all the dead Marines and Someone made a comment, barely Marines, submarines, really. And that was the day they changed the name. Uh, We don't know the exact date. Submarine technology has made some considerable advances since the early days. Um, 
there have been many studies and even more theories on what makes modern day sub modern day submarines stay underwater and move around and do stuff. But the truth is, even Navy's leading engineers will admit they really have no idea. <laughs> A technological breakthrough just on the horizon um, that soon they'll be able to believe they'll be able to put windshields in submarines, which would be huge. And for the first time, crews will be able to see underwater and know where they're going. It would change everything. To this date, submarine travel is completely random, <laughs> and no submarine has ever arrived at its intended destination. If you hadn't read up about it, that's basically just like broad strokes. What about the tactical screen door deployment system? Mm. <laughs> I mean, well, in my youth, that was only on the Polish submarines. You, uh, do you know how We're you canceled now. Do, do you know how you sink in a region submarine? You, How's that? You swim down a knock. Place I don't even know what that means. I'm just laughing. <laughs> you swim down and knock, and they will open. Ah. Uh. Maybe, maybe this one. The Swedish it's audience. Very late. Would, a Swedish audience would have gotten that immediately. <laughs> what if Abe Froman goes down and knocks? Uh, again, who? What if the submarine is off the coast of Zuatneo? And you knock. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to ignore you for the rest of the podcast. I'm drinking a root beer just to annoy you, Thomas. Oh, my God. This is, we, we will, before I leave the U.S., we are going to do a, a list on things I dislike. <laughs> and that is, if not at the top, it is near the top. The main event. So we are going to talk about submarines. Our main event is not the submarine movie. Is it? It is a submarine movie, but I would call it an anti-submarine movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was really struggling with this as a with, with this movie as a submarine movie. You never get on a submarine in this movie. There are a lot of submarines, though. But there are a lot of submarines in this movie. You just never get to get inside one. That's what she said. We have watched uh, Greyhound, which is a war film released on Apple TV. Is it, is it the biggest movie released on Apple TV so far? And Tom Hanks will tell you how pissed he is about that. <laughs> Wait, what? I don't, I haven't read about this. He's so mad that they didn't get a theatrical release and that he had to do all this press for Apple TV. <laughs> because it was, even though, even though it was an Apple TV production, it was still supposed to get a regular uh, theatrical release. And he feels like it, it should be watched in a theater. And, but then they just decided, now we're just going to put it on Apple Plus. And then they made him do all this press for it. And It would be a fantastic big screen movie. I, mm -hmm. I can't imagine yeah. going to see it more than once in the theater, honestly. Even though I've watched it twice on Apple TV, I would pay to see it in a the theater once and that would be yeah. it for me. Well, yeah. in homage to JVL, I watched this movie in the way it was intended in <laughs> portrait mode on my iPhone. Nothing the, but the best. Greyhound is based on the novel The Good Shepherd by C.S. Forrester. It had a budget of about $50 million and Tom Hanks it, says 42 in interviews. Well, so. that's not what Wikipedia says. And I Wikipedia know, but I'm is just the telling you what Tom Hanks says. All truth. Tom Hanks has just pocketed $8 million, is what you're saying. <laughs> they well, did not spend any of that money on promotion. Because mm -mm. I never heard of this thing mm -mm. until like the day before it was released. 
Yeah, I, heard, I, I only heard about it because he was on Conan O'Brien's podcast. Tom Hanks was, and then the next day it was out, and so that's the, when I watched it. Well, the only I, way I heard about it, they were talking about him having COVID when he was filming that movie. Yeah, is that so what if it hadn't been for COVID? Yeah, he was wow, down they in put Australia. Yeah. Did, mm-hmm. did, did they film it in Australia? It, no, 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 no. It can't have been because they filmed this on board uh, a uh, Fletcher class destroyer in in uh, Louisiana. Okay, so, I, so I he must have been filming something else in Australia. Maybe the scenes okay. with him and Elizabeth Shue at the beginning, they flew to Australia. <laughs> <to shoot this. laughs> those, those key important scenes. So in, the, in the book, he had divorced her right before he left. Like yeah. she, had start, she had divorced him and started seeing another guy, a lawyer. And so he asked to be transferred. And that's how he got a command, basically. He's gay in the book? <laughs> yes. Okay. That's what I said. We're gonna we're gonna start to wade into spoiler territory. So, uh, but so I mean, I read the book after I saw it, and I think they got the spirit of it right. Like that's my impression. Yeah, I didn't have a problem with any changes they made. What is the movie about? <laughs> Haiku. What is the movie about? What time is it? <laughs> he has to edit this. So. <laughs> um, this movie is about the Battle of the Atlantic, which. If you're not familiar with World War II, all of the, a lot of the war fighting material that's used in Europe is produced in the United States, and you got to get it across the Atlantic Ocean to where it can be used in Europe. And then any American troops that are going to be in Europe, you got to get them across the ocean too. So uh, convoys, uh, large groups of ships were used to shuttle that stuff across the Atlantic Ocean. And the Germans don't want that to happen. So the only real tool they have to keep the stuff from getting to Great Britain from America is the U-boat. And so they send out packs of U-boats to sink uh, those convoys. So this movie is about a convoy that is being protected by a, uh, an American destroyer, a Canadian Corvette, and two British destroyers working together one to of protect, them was actually I think, Polish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah. But I think 37 ships, something like that. 37 ships originally, uh, 30, uh, seven, seven were sunk. Yeah, so, and only four warships to protect them. And there are, what, seven U-boats that they encounter on this trip? Yeah, yeah um, I don't know. I lost count when it started to ping every second. I was like, holy yeah. crap. So basically, the big issue is that as long as there is air cover near the United States and near Great Britain, it's almost impossible for the U-boats to operate because they can't hide. But as soon as you get out into the middle of the Atlantic beyond air cover, it's open season on these convoys. So the bulk of the movie takes place in what, about a 48, 60-hour period where they're in that gap uh, between air cover in the United States and Great Britain. I again, so I looked at, on the on the fount of all knowledge on Wikipedia. I looked up how many submarines or U-boats were actually sunk, and it said something like 780 or some German U-boats were sunk during the Battle of the Atlantic. And the Battle but of the Atlantic sunk. is not like a one day one day thing. Right. I mean, this goes on right. for months and months and months. You know, but they sunk really the entire the entire war. Thirty-five thousand, excuse me, thirty-five hundred merchant vessels killed 36,000 merchant marine. It's a huge part of the war that a lot of people don't know about. And so it is important to note here that German U-boats, they howl like wolves. 
<laughs> Ryan, would you like to talk about how the movie starts? What, you mean Tom Hanks and Elizabeth Shue sitting across from each other, like 15 feet across from each other <laughs> Social in the lobby of a hotel? Tom Hanks and uh, Elizabeth Shue, they're, I don't know, they, they, are, they are an item? Uh, apparently, so in the movie, he's trying to get her to marry him. Right, and it seems like it seems very and, stiff, and they don't seem very they, romantic yeah, they're at all. Sitting, they're sitting, they're in a, they're in a lobby of a hotel. And they're sitting across from each other, so far away. They'd have to be shouting, "Do you want to get married?" Basically, Elizabeth Shue's like, you know, not really, but maybe if you survive this or something. I can't remember what she <laughs> says. That was, that was the most forgettable part of the movie. I don't know why they changed it from the real. I don't know. To me, it kind of makes it a better story that like he had just gotten a divorce and was like, I'm just going to go to a completely different part of the country and just do something else. Elizabeth Shue does give Tom Hanks a very considerate gift. Oh, the lovers. Oh. With, <laughs> with the slippers. The, the yeah. monogram slippers. The slippers, yeah. could completely have cut that part out of the movie. Part of the story is that it is Tom Hanks' first command, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. what that scene is there His for. First yeah, position. because he's... Um, so he is bitter uh, because he was, like, labeled fitted and retained, which I don't know what that means, but apparently it's an insult <laughs> in the Navy. And uh, he was basically... A lot of the book is about how he has kind of a chip on his shoulder because... He was only given a command because of the expanded forces. Right. So he's sort of like Kelsey Grammer in Down Periscope, that he's been waiting for his own command, and he finally gets it. Uh, although although his, his boat is on the surface of the water and it's slightly better. And so, he was very like um, self-conscious about the fact that the ships he was in command of, like they'd had lots of experience in, in battle, and this was his first command. Haiku, tell the listeners what you thought of the movie. It's brisk. Uh, mm-hmm. It does not waste time. It does Mm-mm. not mess around. I mean, 90-minute <laughs> running time, and uh, as soon as you get out of the hotel lobby, it is off to the races. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the actual like movie without credits is an hour and 20 minutes. It's like an hour and 22 minutes, and it's essentially a theme park ride. I was telling Haiku this earlier, like, it, it just does not stop. There are no breaks throughout that entire movie. And I thought it was really, really well paced. You know, it, it didn't waste a lot of time on the, except for the Elizabeth Shue scene in the beginning. It didn't waste a lot of time. It was all about that psychological battle he was going through across in the Atlantic. There's this constant waiting for death that is just mm-hmm. inherent to uh, some anti-submarine warfare. There's always something going on, and even if there's not something going on, there's something going on, but there is no wasted time with dead-end side plots. One of the interesting things about this movie, Mustang, I can't remember if I was talking about this with you or somebody else, they don't explain any of the terminology. No. Mm -hmm. There there, there is, if you have not been in a naval service or if you haven't been in close proximity to a naval, uh, to anybody in a naval service, there's stuff going on that is not explained. And if you know the terminology or know where to go find it, then you're fine. But otherwise, you just kind of have to figure out what's going on. And that, I think, makes this kind of a niche movie. Not for everybody. This movie, 
it, it's easy to compare it to Saving Private Ryan because Tom Hanks, World War II. In Saving Private Ryan, you have this subplot of, hey, let's go find Matt Damon that is basically the delivery vehicle for, hey, let's show you Omaha Beach and the Normandy invasion. There is no delivery device here. The, the battle is the star of the show. Yeah. And it never really lets up. Yeah, it's so tightly scoped, it doesn't have room for anything else. And yeah. it was effective, but I can see it not having a wide appeal. I think a good example of this is when they get fired up on and there's a fire on the ship. In almost any other movie, you would see them fighting the fire and there would be some sort of scene with that. They don't really do any of that. All they show is Tom Hanks leaning over the side, looking at it, and then he goes off and does something else instead. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, Thomas, because most of this movie, once you get on the ship, most of this movie takes place between the bridge wings. He's either on the bridge or he's on the wing to the port or he's on the wing to the starboard. And other than the burial at sea, you almost, or when you go down uh, to where the XO is at the plotting table, you almost never get off the bridge or off of the, the bridge wings. It, it, the world of this movie is very, very small. And, right. and in a so way, that kind of makes it like a submarine movie. In, in a, in a mm. submarine movie, it's a very small world. And this movie duplicates that by just following Tom Hanks around the bridge, dealing with what he's got to deal with. So what, what did you think of the action itself? I mean, I thought the action was, was good. I thought that it was you know, probably pretty well re- representative of what it was actually like to be on one of those uh, ships. They didn't waste a lot of time and a lot of drama or the other things that you normally see in these movies. And it, it kind of showed the brutality of, you know, you had the, uh, the mess steward getting killed fighting the fire and it was it was just i thought well plotted throughout the whole thing that he wasn't called? killed fighting the fire he got blown up at the gun yeah. that's right because he was passing that's ammunition, right. which so is it, fairly typical job for a black mess steward at battle stations mm-hmm. my subtitle for this movie is four ways to kill a submarine and everything that can go wrong while you're trying mm-hmm. um the the things that, i mean especially in convoy duty where you've got four warships that have to range kind of you know, the, the source material is a book called The Good Shepherd. Maybe the sheepdog is a better way to look at it because that's the way that these uh, convoy escorts have to operate. They have to go from the front of the convoy to the back whenever there is a sighting. And when you're doing that, the risk of a collision at sea is a very real thing. Um, my dad served in the Navy during World War or during He's not that old. During the Vietnam War, he would tell me about... Uh, a thing called CBDR, constant bearing decreasing range. That's navalese for a collision course. Well, in the heat of a battle, you see a CBDR situation in this movie that is probably more dangerous than anything that the destroyer that Hanks is the captain of faces from the su- from the submarines, because it's hard to hit a ship with a World War II submarine, uh, World War II torpedo, but it's really easy to get a destroyer cut in half because it turns right in front of a freighter. One of the things uh, that struck me in the movie was how how easy the ship, what do you call it, destroyer? Uh, he's on a destroyer. He's on a destroyer. It's how yeah. easy it is to turn and maneuver. The movie gives the impression that, I assume that it takes time, right? But the movie gives the impression that he's just sipping around the convoy and around the submarine. There is one scene where uh, Tom Hanks, together with another captain and another destroyer, is it the British one, I think? And they're trying to fight 
uh, a submarine and they're getting too close and they're just circling it. Yeah, that was the Canadian Corvette, which is a very small ship, very small, very nimble. And then the destroyer also, uh, the, the destroyer that Hanks is the captain of is slightly less than 400 feet long. So that may sound big, but for a warship, that's that's small. They're they're fast and they're nimble. But yeah, that's an interesting situation where you catch a submarine on the surface. But if it gets too close to you, you can't get your guns depressed far enough to hit it. But it's shooting up at you and just blowing yeah. holes in your ship. One uh, one shot that uh, I quite liked and that I found a bit striking was, I believe it's 40, 46, 45 minutes in, there's this scene during the night where they pan out and they, I guess they move up maybe even over the clouds or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you see all the things that are going on around the convoy and, uh, and with the escort. And I found that to be like, I'm sure it's CGI'd. To hell but it still looked really good like it gave you an overview of what the battle actually looked like and it is the kind of shot that michael bay never would have put in a movie yeah michael bay would come in really close and show you a quarter spinning on the or sparks flying from a from a slow motion shell hit or something like that a very minor subplot was the fact that tom hanks didn't eat and you had a chef constantly trying to give him food. And every time you saw him put the tray down, it looked like a really nice tray, like something you would get in a hotel where the food was spread out and everything. And then the next second, it just crashed to the floor because Tom Hanks didn't have time to eat. Yeah, if you know anything about the way a bridge watch works on a naval vessel, the watch changes multiple times over the course of the movie. Basically, everybody on the bridge gets swapped out except Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks wanted to have like four completely different crews basically or casts for each of the different watches they couldn't quite do it because they just didn't have the budget but he really really wanted to do it like as realistically as possible and they still they did a pretty good job of like representing that um, and that's pretty true to life because the captain is no matter what else is going on the captain's the guy in charge so you know captains sometimes you know when they're at sea they have an at sea cabin which will often be, you know, right there on the bridge. So, you know, if you need the captain in the middle of the night, he's just two steps away. And so they did a really good job of representing the, the role of the captain plays in that whole thing. And you just watch Hanks get exhausted. Is not eating, not sleeping. You're fighting the elements. It's cold. It's windy. It's wet. Um, high-stress environment, and everybody else gets a chance to leave the bridge and decompress for at least a while. And he never allows himself that, and you see by the end that he is just trashed. Yeah, I, I was just finishing The the Cruel Sea by Nicholas Montserrat, which is kind of the same story, except it's the entire war, and it's written from a British perspective. And it, the the one constant you get through the whole thing is the two characters you follow kind of through the whole book is just the the weariness and the how much this kind of constant life at sea beats upon you. In the book, uh, a big uh, thing is that um, uh, is uh, he Kraus Captain Kraus drinks drinks a lot of coffee, and he uh, it, a lot of the um, plot points are him planning his times when he's going to have a chance to go to the head. And then, like, <laughs> him admonishing himself for not doing it ahead of time because <laughs> he's about to move his pants. <laughs> There's something else that happens with Hanks, too, that I think you, it would be easy to miss. 
one of the first times that he calls for a messenger to write down a, um, uh, I forget if this is to be uh, a light signal to the other ships or if it's a radio, but radio signal, but it, it he, he stops the message. He gives the messenger the, the message and then stops him and says, thank you. He, he basically wants him to add thank you to the end of the message. Okay. Towards the end of the movie, he and the executive officer are arguing, or not even not arguing, they're discussing how to get a three-word message that has to be broadcast in the clear where the Germans might pick it up down to a single word. I mean, he's learning how to how to cap it in these situations. He's never done this before. And that's just a little thing that I picked up on that I thought was really interesting how he as time and energy are running out on him, he's learning how to be more efficient, even in what, in how he communicates. I think Haiku maybe mentioned this earlier. One of the things I like about this movie is toward the end, you still don't really know if he's actually going to make it or not. When they are facing off with the two, the last two submarines and they end up sinking them. I caught myself doing like a fist pump and going, yes, Mm-hmm. Because it was it was quite intense, and even though there's no exposition, you don't really get to know the characters too much. You still felt sort of invested in making sure that they survived at the end, and I think that's a very neat trick that this movie still somehow pulls off. Uh, I shall also say about the enemy. I like how they never show anything from the inside of one of the U-boats or anything like that. You only see them on the surface. You hear them howling over the speaker and it makes them feel like a menacing enemy that's out there, but that's sort of invisible and you can't really tell where they are. You really experience the, the U-boats, the way that the crew of that destroyer and the, the, the crew of those, those merchantmen would have experienced. You, you don't see them inside the U-boats. You may never even see the U-boats themselves, except from a distance, but you know they're there and you know what they're capable of. It's kind of a way of not showing the monster too many times. A lot of the other submarine movies do a lot of work to to humanize the other side. And so they show you both sides of it. You know, for for the guys on the boat, that's really unrealistic. This is a very realistic view of them just being in constant dread of these U-boats that are there and can at any minute take a torpedo shot on them and blow them out of the water. I thought it was really effective. Did it look like $50 million on screen? I am surprised that's all they spent on it. I thought the CGI was pretty good. Uh, yeah. Water is water is hard to do. And when you've got when you've got ships in close proximity and they're whizzing past each other, I didn't think it looked video game. I thought it looked pretty good. Haiku, you still haven't given us your hot take. Well, two things. Uh, one is I do have a little bit of a quibble, and this is just a historical nerd thing. They make a big deal in that opening scene with Elizabeth Shue that he's getting a Fletcher-class destroyer, and the Fletcher-class didn't go into service until four months after this movie supposedly took place. <laughs> that is a weird error to make when you are working really hard to be realistic. In, in February 1942, there were no... Unless I'm misinformed, there were no joint task forces like this yet. They would happen, but they didn't happen yet. There's a mention of the USS Kidd by one of um, Hanks's crewmen. The Kidd is named after a, an admiral that was killed at, War- at Pearl Harbor two months before this movie took place. 
the destroyer named after him wouldn't go into service for another year. For them to take such great care to try, I mean, they shot this on the only remaining Fletcher-class destroyer that is still in the configuration it was in World War II. So they took great pains to try to get the details right. I don't know how you screw those things up. So all they would have had to do is to change Set the it dates. a year later. Yeah. Set it a year later and you're fine. Uh, it's such a weird mistake to make. I, it doesn't ruin the movie for me. It annoys me, but it doesn't ruin the movie for me. I still it, think it's a, a very good watchable film. Takes it down uh, a, one A rewatchable film. I, I'd watch it again. And that probably brings me to the hot take. Um, this, this movie to me does, how, how, how to say this? I like this movie better than I like Dunkirk. <laughs> I like this movie. I like this movie a lot more than I like Dunkirk. Um, now, I like Dunkirk. I just don't love Dunkirk. This, this you like Quentin Tarantino, and you didn't, you, you couldn't figure out the timelines. <laughs> no, I totally understood what what was going on in in Dunkirk, and I'm just not that blown away by it. I mean, to tell the three elements of the movie that you want to tell, you've got to do it in three different timescales because the the ground battle, the sea battle, and the air battle take place in different timescales. To me, it's not that spectacular. Dunkirk does this really well. I describe Dunkirk as the, the, essence, uh, the, the experience of death screaming in your face for two hours. <laughs> Dunkirk does that really, really well. I think, I think Greyhound does that better. Yeah, Let me ask you this. Was Tom Hardy wearing a mask in Greyhound? <laughs> I definitely see why one would compare it to Dunkirk because of what you say. Like it is intense from the first moment until the last. And you sit there and you're just thrown from scene to scene and things just keep happening. And that's, I, I like that in movies. But to say that it is better than Dunkirk, no. <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely see why there is a segment of the population that this really appeals to more than yeah. Dunkirk might. It's one of the best movies I've seen this year. Granted, we haven't seen that many We haven't seen any movies this year. <laughs> it's up there probably in the top three, together with uh, The Gentleman and something that I'm forgetting for the moment. Until you see Palm Springs. That might be next week's uh, movie for, for, uh, for the podcast, so we'll see. How many stars would you give it? Oh, uh, I would give this a solid... Three, four, four stars. Are we going out of five? I would give it a four stars. Yeah. Out of six I and a half. Was, I had six and a half. <laughs> uh, you know, I thought it was a really good movie. I think, you know, um, for everything we've we've said, I don't have any hot takes like <laughs> comparison to Dunkirk, but you know, I'd love. <laughs> I, I I'd love to see. Uh, I don't know if this is Oscar worthy for Hanks, but you know, I'm I'm still bitter about uh, Saving Private Ryan losing out to uh, Shakespeare in Love for Best Picture. So who knows, maybe this can uh, make up for him. It's slim pickings this year. Yeah, I would also, I would give it, I, I think that Dunkirk is a five-star movie. I would say that Greyhound is definitely a four-star movie. Yeah, I'd, I'd give it four. I recognize this as a niche movie. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, an, I'm a Navy brat whose son is in the Coast Guard. I love this movie. It, it kind of, it felt very home and comfortable for me. I can totally understand why a person would look at this movie and say, huh? but I, I really enjoyed it. From an anti-submarine movie to an anti-anti-submarine movie. No, I'm kidding. To, to <laughs> submarine movies. So for this episode, I believe that all of us have watched for the first time or re-watched a bunch of submarine movies, which I think helped me actually follow along in Greyhound that I had watched, I think, six submarine movies before this. 
So I had gotten some of the jargon so I could sort of follow along. Like, I don't know what everything they're saying. I don't know what all of it means. Hey, I right, know but that. You're like, oh, that's an ocean. Submarine movies. What, what do you guys have? Crimson Tide is the best submarine movie. Incorrect. <laughs> no. What is better than Crimson no. Tide? What? In, in 1996, I might have agreed with you, but Crimson Tide has not oh aged gosh. well for me. I what? It's in, <laughs> aged incredibly well. I didn't no. watch it. I watched it maybe a month ago, but not. But and I was even better than I remembered. Yeah, but I love what Crimson was wrong Tide. with? Okay, wrong, okay, tell me, tell me what was wrong with Crimson Crimson Tide? It's implausible. If you're gonna make a a political military thriller, it has to not go beyond the ragged edge of implausibility, and a crew would not behave like that. If even in even in that situation, a captain would not put a gun to the head of an enlisted crewman and threaten to blow his brains all over his console to get one of his officers to do a thing. I, I just can't imagine that. And if it did happen, he would be in the brig as soon as he got back to shore. For me, that is where Crimson Tide goes off the rails, is that scene. If Gene Hackman is the captain and Denzel Washington is the XO, then it could happen. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those movies that that it should me, be better it, than it is. Sure, I mean, I guess to me that movie, like, I don't even care what's going on. If Gene Hackman <laughs> and Denzel Washington are yelling at each other, it's the best submarine movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Hack, Hackman does a wonderful job at being just a creepy, hard to deal with captain. But there's stuff about that movie that I'm just like, there, there, so there, that there wouldn't are- happen. I, I love Crimson Tide, but there are two things that when I, I, re- I hadn't watched it for, I don't know, at least, at least 12 years. It used to be on television all the time back home growing. Like I used to watch, I, I've seen it several times. But then when I rewatched it and you got to, you get to like the second arm takeover of the con. And I'm yeah, like, how many times do they visit the, the weapons locker <laughs> on this submarine? How is anybody not packing by the end of this movie? <laughs> And then, you know what Thomas's favorite part of Crimson Tide is? No sure. women have any lines in it. <laughs> <laughs> Written by Quentin Tarantino. And then there's the end where I'm like, okay, so what happens now? I had completely forgotten that they go to, I don't know, they go to Pearl Harbor. Is, is that a thing that you would do? I don't know. And, and Gene Hackman and Denzel are standing there in front of the Admiral. And it's essentially just like, Okay, you retire, you get your own boat, that's it. Yeah, see, that's another thing that would not happen. Uh, Denzel Washington's career would be over. <laughs> Even if he was right, his career is over. For me, the, the, the Crimson Tide is a fantasy movie. It is not a military thriller. It's got to have some plausibility. And the scenario they set up is plausible, but the way that it's handled is really, really a stretch for me. Are you, so, are you, did for you me, see, that's why uh, the movie hasn't aged well. Tony Scott took uh, more than 60 seconds to show the boat going into the water, so. <laughs> What's your favorite? Uh, well, my favorite submarine movie is The Hunt for Red October. I think that's just got to be a given there. Yeah, so that one's a hokey movie too, but I, that one to me stands up. I rewatched Crimson Tide. I love Crimson Tide, but on rewatching it again, I had a lot of the same quibbles had about it. Excuse me, that haiku had about it. <laughs> But uh, all right, so 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 you think 
You think that Crimson Tide is more implausible than The Hunt for Red October? Like I said, I didn't, the movie has to be on at least the Thomas, right The deep state takes over submarines all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Red October lives on the ragged edge of plausibility. Crimson Tide crosses over into implausibility. And that's unfortunate because Crimson Tide, like I said, I loved Crimson Tide when it came out. It's a great action movie. It's got some great scenes. Uh, the, the, the tension there between Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman is great, but there's just some stuff in that movie that just bugs the snot out of me and, and now ruins the movie for me. But, but I'm with Mustang. Hunt for Red October is, is my favorite. And part of it's just the age. That was my first sub movie, but also growing up as a Clancy fan, um, I, think, I think it's a great adaptation of the novel. Uh, that's that simplifies the novel, but is is really true to it. It's the great uh, a great ad- adaptation of what I think is Clancy's best novel. Many people will argue Clear and Present Danger, but I, I think The Hunt for Red October is his best novel. <laughs> okay, I'm going to fight you now. <laughs> but Actually, I'm not going to fight you. I I, I I agree with you that like th- this is where I have uh, a disagreement with our friend JVL who if I remember correctly, has said that he believes Clear and Present Danger is the best adaptation of a Clancy novel. I, I just can't agree. It's a perfectly defensible uh, uh, position, but it's wrong. Here, here's why Red October is the superior movie adaptation. It takes a very complex novel, it reduces it to its essentials, and simplifies the relevant but complex details and what results is a final movie that's not only incredibly faithful to the novel, but it's, it's arguably superior to it. The novel's great. The movie's just well-paced, and, and, and any, just about anybody can follow it. In fact, the movie has done so well that I'm not even bothered that they took out my favorite scene from the novel, which is the mock attack on the Soviet uh, cruiser by four Air National Guard A-10s. Which talk about the ragged edge of plausibility, but I just love. I, I can pick up that novel and just flip to that page and read it because I love that scene where they basically approach it from four directions and bracket and, and parachute flares, basically to send a message. You know, you guys don't belong here, and we can take you out even with a land attack aircraft if we want to. It's a great sequence. It features the most glorious but underappreciated aircraft in the U.S. arsenal, and it's irrelevant to the movie. So uh, the movie doesn't suffer for excluding it. Now compare that. The, the, the superiority of the, the movie adaptation of the novel, Red October, to Clear and Present Danger. Now, as everybody knows who's read the novel, Clear and Present Danger was primarily about the U.S. Coast Guard, literally from first to last. Okay? The Coasties open the book by capturing two pirates. They stage a mock captain's mast and mock sentence the pirates to death. They pretend to hang one of the pirates from the yardarm of their cutter in order to extract a full and complete confession from his partner in crime. And that sets off all the action in the book. And then, you know, the, everybody spends the next, you know, the, the middle half of the novel screwing everything up. And then at the end of the movie, the, at the end of the book, the Coasties have to come in and save the day. Uh, they, as usual, they have to, you know, drive into dangerous waters. They drive their cutter into a hurricane so that the special operations helicopter rescuing Jack Ryan and the army grunts who illegally invaded Columbia have a place to land before they crash into the ocean. So this is a Coast Guard book. And listen, the Coast Guard has a grand total of three movies made about them. They've got the finest the one was Ashton Kutcher. They've got something with Ashton Kutcher in it. And they've got a, a thing called Onion Heads. Okay. 
So here's a golden opportunity to finally give the hooligan Navy the full credit they deserve. And yet, what does John Milius do with the screenplay for Clear and Present Danger? He reduces the essential role of the Coast Guard to a token two-minute chase during the opening credits on his way to wholesale altering the essence of the book and ruining the whole novel. You know what, John Milius? You can alto Subarco and Semper My Paratus because you deserve to have your entrails eaten by wolverines while you watch. I, I read the book after I'd seen the movie. I'd seen the movie so many times, and then I read the book, and I was like, wait, what? The, like, the, I could not believe that the Coast Guard was such a big part of the book, and then they're not even in the movie. Yeah. I was mad, too, because, like, that was my obviously my favorite part of the book. After that rant, I have a hunt for Red October question. So when Sean Connery is going to start to head toward the U.S., and somewhere outside of Iceland, they go into this Red Route 1. What's the purpose of that? Because it seems like you can get where they're going faster anyway. So The trick is not to get there faster. The trick is to get there undetected. Get there without being seen. Yeah, and the issue is the Soviets had mapped those canyons out and figured out, you know, and they explained this in the movie, how how fast to go for how long before you turn and what degree to turn at. And that's something the Americans didn't have. So they could evade American submarines by running through those canyons. And it, w- it wouldn't be faster, but it, it increased the chances that they, they wouldn't have Americans following them. Unless you have a really clever sonar guy that knows exactly what's up. Yeah. I was going to say about Crimson Tide, I think that Gene Hackman would have made for a great Nazi had he been alive in that era. What other summary movies have you guys seen in the past week? I watched Black Sea. What is that? I I don't... It's from 2014 with Jude Law, Scoop McNary, and Ben Mendelsohn. It's about these salvage guys who get laid off and Jude Law is like a captain. Then he has cancer and he gets laid off. It's in present day. And then he has this shady guy who has this old submarine and says, well, I know where this Nazi U-boat is and there's gold on it. And so they fix up this submarine and they go after it. It's kind of a um, Fargo situation to where they, uh, they have to choose between making it back or keeping the gold. Was it? It's, was it any? It has a box office of one point six million. So <laughs> it was better than what I, I'd never heard of it before. Like I, I googled submarine movies, and it's on Netflix. And I was like, I, I love. I'm a huge Ben Mendelsohn and Scoop McNary. Like, okay, I'm gonna watch this. It's better than I thought it was gonna be, but it was. There was some silliness in it. Uh, so for this week i watched uh i rewatched run silent run deep uh which is respect uh, the classics man that's a that's the classic that's the black and white clark gable well it's a don rickles first feature film uh role as a uh as a player as i'm concerned the hunt for october was the first submarine movie so i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) i watched uh das boot for the first time which we all know is vic's favorite so I, 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 I considered watching Das Boot yesterday and I was met- messaging with Haiku and he mentioned that it is three and a half hours long. It is a very long movie. <laughs> it's a slog. And so that's, that's a hard pass for, for me. <laughs> I watched uh, The Enemy Below with Robert Mitchum and Ch- Kurt Jurgens. That's a, a fun one, but it's very much a, a 50s movie where it's a 
lots of orchestra and grand sweeping views of the ship sailing through a brightly lit ocean. So a little a little light on the plot, but still a lot of fun. Uh, I rewatched U five seven one. Oh, how uh, did movie. you how did you like that one? Or I I love U five seven one. I know a lot of people hate it, but what? I I think it's a great movie, especially if they're British. My favorite my favorite scene from U five seven one is when uh, like after they get on the submarine and and Matty McConaughey finds out that he didn't get his command. And Bill Paxton brings him in, and he's just like, I know you'd give your, your life for the men, but I know you'd sacrifice yourself for the men, but what about their lives? And he's like, what about Emmett? You went to school with him. And he's like, what? And he's like, you hesitated. See, you can't hesitate. And so like, I made an Instagram video about this where the original script was like, what about Emmett? Here's my gun. Go shoot him in the head right now. What? See, you hesitated. As a captain, you have to be ready to kill all of your men in cold-blooded murder without hesitation or reflection. Like Gene Hackman in Crimson Tide. <laughs> <laughs> that is Ryan's gold standard for a submarine captain. But uh, Ryan, didn't you say that this is Maddie's worst part, like one of the worst parts you've ever I, seen? Yeah, I think I think Bill Paxton's terrible in this. I don't know what I don't know uh, what accent he's doing. I don't know. He's, what, he's doing the Bill Paxton accent. I, mean, I don't know what editing. I don't know what editing they're doing because, like, they just like hold. Like at the end of every scene, they hold on the guys' faces just for so long. Like we're supposed to get something out of it. When I watch U five seven one, I'm just like, when does bon jo- John Bon Jovi die? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the best part of the movie. <laughs> You're not. Ryan, you were, you were mentioning. Ryan, you were mentioning the scene where where Paxton is giving uh, Matthew McConaughey. By the way, one of Matthew McConaughey's first leading roles, if not if not mm-hmm. other than the first. But he's he's you know giving him the lecture, and then eventually he has to send one of his crewmen into a near death situation, <laughs> and then finds out that the kid died, and he's like, "Wow, the kid never quit," <laughs> and moves on. <laughs> it's just like, well, he figured it out. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you can do it. He just cold and caring towards his crew. (laughs) Right. I think what bugs me about U571, and not to keep ragging on Crimson Tide, but there's just so much God in the machine going on where, you know, they just conveniently escape from from crush depth uh, just in the nick of time. It's such a trope in submarine movies, and there just comes a point where you can't stand going to crush depth anymore. The other thing I like about U571 is where, that naval warfare officer is like briefing them on what they're going to do. And he's like, he says, uh, this is what we're going to get off of that. And he shows them a picture. And one of the officers says a typewriter. typewriter. I was like, yeah, it's a typewriter dipshit. We came all this way for a typewriter. <laughs> Who let this guy think, in here? I think my favorite part of U571 is when that, that intelligence guy freezes as they're approaching the German sub and, and then the, the kid that's afraid that everybody's going to find out that he's half German just starts yeah. swearing at the German crew and talking about yeah. the, the French porn that they're bringing up. It, yeah, it, it's, says, it's hard he, not to laugh at that. His name is Wince in the movie, and he says, uh, hey, don't tell anybody that I'm half yeah, German. Don't tell anybody like, I'm German, so please. Don't tell, don't tell them your name. <laughs> All right, we, we are going to keep talking about submarines in the after show, but before we do that, I would like Mustang and Haiku to give us their submarine movie rankings. So, uh, 
Mustang man, how about you go first? You got so much editing to do on this show. <laughs> so I got, I got, I got eight here. At number eight, I put in K nineteen, The Widowmaker. Mm-hmm. Good movie, but I just didn't buy Tom, uh, Harrison Ford as the uh, Russian sub captain in that. Uh, we'll talk uh, more about n- that in the after show. Just keep going. Uh, number seven, U five seven one. Number six, okay. Crimson Tide. Number five, Das Boot. Number Two. four, The Enemy Below. Number three, Greyhound. Number two, Run Silent, Run Deep. And number one, The Hunt for Red October. Uh, I got a top five, and I've got to say that uh, I don't, I don't either don't remember or haven't seen some of the classics like Run Silent, Run Deep, or The Enemy Below, or Ice Station Zebra on the beach. I mean, these are all movies that I've wanted to watch and just never gotten around to it. So understand that if I watch those, I might revise my rankings. Also, I don't have Greyhound on my list because it's not a submarine movie. It's an anti-submarine movie. <laughs> so, so here's my top five. Uh, number five, K-19, The Widowmaker. Uh, like Mustang, I liked it. I didn't love it. Uh, and it's basically here to demonstrate that the things not on my list are not as good as that movie. You know, if you're not familiar with the story, it's based on a true story of the first, the first Soviet nuclear missile submarine, which basically operates as well as you think that the people who brought you Chernobyl would operate <laughs> um, with predictable results. And that's really, you know, where, where the tension and the fear in this movie comes. And Mustang and I were talking before with submarine movies, you're basically getting horror movies. As soon as you introduce the elements that can kill you, it becomes a horror movie in, 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 at some way. And the Widowmaker, basically the, the radiation can kill you. Uh, number four, the incredible Mr. Limpet. Again, I don't know what that is. <laughs> the Incredible Mr. Limpet is uh, the 1961 mixed live-action animation classic that was Don Knox's Don Knotts's first movie. Uh, he huh. is a man who uh, first leading role. He is a man who desperately wants to serve in the Navy after Pearl Harbor, but they won't take him because he's got bad eyesight and he's Don Knotts. Uh, He falls off a pier in New Jersey and turns into a fish and gains the supernatural ability to use sonar to detect enemy submarines. And so he sails around the Atlantic uh, finding Nazi submarines and then reporting them to the sonar operators of Allied destroyers. And he likes this better than Crimson Tide. Way more realistic than Crimson Tide. Yes, yes. Right there on the ragged edge of, of plausibility, The Incredible mm-hmm. Mr. Limpet. Okay. And a better next? movie than Crimson Tide. Uh, number three, X-Men First Class. A better, a, a more of a submarine movie than Greyhound, which I really <laughs> like. But X-Men First Class, you have a submarine, you actually go inside it, and the submarine can actually fly, provided that you know, Magneto's nearby. My top two are almost a tie. I love them both. I love them for different reasons. Uh, so it's basically 1A and 1B, Das Boot and The Hunt for Red October. Das Boot, which we haven't really talked about, but it is the, uh, it's a German language movie. So I think it has one English line in the whole movie. Uh, <laughs> and it's a great one. Uh, but the rest is all German with subtitles. It is basically a counterpoint to Greyhound because you are getting the German side of the story. Uh, It's about a German submarine that, uh, in fact, it takes place within months of Greyhound. It takes place in the fall of of, uh, 1941. No submarine movie puts you inside the submarine the way Das Boot does. You feel how cramped it is. You see over the course of the movie how they start out eating fresh lettuce, and and then they start eating canned stuff, and 
before long, you're eating, they're eating what looks like cat food. Uh, you see their beards get longer and the rings around their eyes grow and then get chippy with each other. It really immerses you, pardon the pun, in just how difficult a submarine patrol is. So at three and a half hours, it is a slog. But if you're going to watch a submarine movie, this is the standard by which all submarine movies should be should be measured. And then, of course, The Hunt for Red October is my other favorite. They're, they're just very different movies, uh, but I love them both. We are going to cut there and head over to the after show where we'll keep talking about submarine movies because I have questions mostly about these questionable rankings. Uh, <laughs> that is it for this week. Thank you guys. Good night and what good luck. Peterson directed Dust <laughs>